Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. It's me, your host, Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet and woman who loves to talk about money. And something that we don't always touch on when it comes to talking about money and the role that it plays in our life today is sort of the genesis of where our relationship to money comes from, what started us on the paths that we happen to be on now when it comes to building wealth and seeking financial security. We all come to money with a lot of emotional baggage. Many of us were raised in either financial precarity or financial instability. Some of us grew up on the wealthier side or maybe lost a lot of money or had separated parents who had totally different relationships to money. Some of us went from having a lot of it to having very little or vice versa. And we often act as though as adults, we should arrive to finances fully formed and sort of just make all of the right decisions because those are the ones we're being told to make. And that's assuming you even have the ability to gather the right information. And of course, it's always important to address money as the fundamentally very emotional thing that it is and acknowledge the parts of our past that lead us to have the relationship with money that we do today. While we do believe that it is ideal to get to a place where our relationship with money is not one that is based in emotional baggage or fear or shame, It's also important that we acknowledge our backstories with money in order to be able to move past them. My guest today is someone who now talks about money quite frequently, twice a week in fact, on her YouTube channel, Erin Talks Money. But her relationship to money today is one that was formed out of a pretty complicated history that left her very cognizant of the vulnerability that we can be exposing ourselves to if we don't take hold of our financial stability and security. My guest had a health incident, which I will let her speak to, which left her disabled, but also left her in a very precarious place when it came to her finances and very aware of just how much of our life trajectory can either be defined or in many cases compromised by our lack of financial planning. She set out on a path to take hold of her finances in a way that many people simply don't think to, both because of, but then also beyond her initial health story. Her approach to talking about money now is one that I personally find extremely relatable and empowering, and her story, both from a health perspective and a financial perspective, is one that I think we would all be very wise to think about. Some of you might remember my interview with Crutches and Spice, Imani Barbarin, where we talked about how, especially in a post-pandemic society, we are all much closer than we think to the sort of catastrophic event that could change our lives, and in some cases leave us in total financial ruin if we're not prepared for them. Now, for some people, that might extend all the way up to achieving financial independence, but for others, it can just be a matter of taking control of their finances in a way they hadn't before. And thanks to PNC Bank for sponsoring this episode of The Financial Confessions. Join me on April 6th at 7 p.m. Eastern for Six Money Lessons I Wish I'd Learned Earlier, a totally free webcast for students. I'll be sharing practical, judgment-free advice that you can start implementing right away. Again, it's totally free, so I'll see you there. And thanks to ZocDoc for supporting TFC. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who take your insurance and are available when you need them. Go to ZocDoc.com TFC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. No matter where we may be starting with our finances, it's always important to remember that we need to be taking them more seriously than we were likely raised to, and few people are more equipped to talk about that than my guest today, Erin Moriarty of Erin Talks Money. Hi, Erin. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for being here. I should specify that while you do do YouTube, you also have a full-time job, which we will talk about as well. Um, but I would love to, for my audience, just start by hearing your backstory and kind of what brought you to not just kind of taking control of your money in the way you have, but also talking about it as part of your career. Sure. Um, I actually, I kind of have a unique relationship with money in that it was really open in my family. It was something we always talked about. I had a grandma who was very interested in the stock market. So she got me investing at a very young age. Um, I was raised by a single mom. So she wasn't really into investing all that much. She was a great saver, but primarily her job was getting food on the table for her kids and making it to the next paycheck. Um, my biggest thing that kind of formed my relationship was when I was 17, I just woke up one day and the entire right side of my body was numb. So my mouth drooped down, my eye was closed, my speech was slurred, I couldn't use my hand, walking wasn't the easiest. Um, went to the hospital and it turned out it was a meningioma, which is a benign brain tumor. So thank goodness, benign and had some surgeries to remove that. There were some complications all in all about five surgeries, but after they removed it, there was a long recovery process, relearning to do all the things you would be doing if you were a child, you know, learning to write, learning to type, learning to hold a fork. Um, but it kind of just shook me up in the sense that you can be healthy, everything can be going great until one day you wake up and it isn't. And it left me with epilepsy. So that's a very, very unpredictable medical condition to be left with because there's no timetable for when a seizure happens. And you kind of then live your life every single day wondering, is today the day it's going to happen? And how bad is it going to be? And how long is it going to last? And how long does it take to recover from? So I really like set out on this path to be, I have to control my finances because if I get something like this happening again, how long is it going to take me out of the workforce? And how am I going to be able to buy groceries and pay my house and things like that? So it was quite a shock at just such a young age. And, you know, from what I know about you, I think it might be fair to say that your relationship with money um, throughout your adulthood used to be a lot more conservative. And I don't want to say necessarily fear-based, although you might use a phrase like that, but now you've gotten to a place where you're able to enjoy money more and you're less sort of maybe anxious or ultra conservative about it. Um, I'd be really interested to hear kind of that transition, um, both in terms of the emotional aspect of it, but also in terms of the practicalities, like, you know, how you know you're at a place where you can be more flexible. Um, I would say it's really twofold for me. Um, much of my 20s were very, very difficult. I'm 35 now, so this all happened when I was 17 and 18. But dealing with the seizures and learning to cope with those and trying to find a way to balance work and balance life with those was incredibly stressful because they absolutely interrupt your life. They interrupt your work life. So for me, it was getting seizures under control. And I have the type that 
aren't well controlled by medicine. Luckily, I do have what are known as simple seizures. So I'm fully conscious when they happen, but that means you fully get to experience them and they may last five minutes. They may last four hours and anywhere in between. So it's a big disruptor in life, but getting those under control kind of allowed me to be less fearful about money because I felt like I had more control of my life in general. The more out of control you feel, the harder it is to feel like you're okay in any sense. So I think spending a decade figuring out what the triggers are, what I could do to prevent them, that helped me get more into a mindset where I was like, okay, now I can work like a normal person and I don't have to work 80 hours a week thinking that I might not be able to work one day when I wake up because I, I know how to deal with my health issues now. And also saving for that decade gave me enough of a nest egg that I'm like, okay, should something happen? If I was taken out of the workforce for a year and I needed a year to recover from something, I'm okay. So I think it's twofold in building up the savings and getting my health back. When it comes to you know, the the concept of being prepared for all outcomes, you know, I think a lot of people feel very overwhelmed at the prospect of preparing themselves financially. And I do think, you know, especially, I think everyone sort of as they age gets to a more cognizant place of, you know, whether or not it feels scary or overwhelming, like you have to be prepared. You have to have insurance if, if you can access it. You have to have things like a will. You have to be prepared that, you know, all of the things that we count on on a day-to-day -day basis to always be able to earn more money are not necessarily a given. Um, but a lot of people, you know, whether it's that they're totally dismissive of that, which I think a lot of us, I mean, I was that way in my early 20s. I think a lot of young people, they especially, you know, as it pertains to things like retirement, you know, you sort of have this weird mentality of like, I'll either never die or I'll, you know, die on a motorcycle at 25 and don't need to worry about uh, retirement. Um, but, you know, whether it's someone who has kind of a dismissive approach to preparation financially or someone who's very anxious about it, you know, as someone who really never had a choice but to think in those terms, how do you recommend that people approach um, preparing themselves financially for all different outcomes? Well, first off, I want to say I think it's totally normal, especially in your 20s and probably very likely in your 30s to have a very dismissive approach to it. Because most people aren't sitting there thinking, oh, I'm going to get sick or, oh, I'm going to die when they're 25 and you shouldn't. Like those are not natural thoughts, I feel like. I feel like people who've had health issues, people who've been thrust into that situation or people they've cared about deeply watch them go through something, they're going to have a moment of pause and they're going to look at it differently. And I don't want everyone thinking that their life is going to be shook up tomorrow. I mean, it could be. and I. I I go through life like that just because of my past experiences, but I don't think it's necessarily the healthiest approach. I think it's better to look at it as I could lose my job and how can I make it the next month? Because losing your job is a reality, whether or not you have a health issue, you're 20, you're 30, that could happen to anyone. Granted, a health issue could happen, but I don't want people to be fear-based. Uh, I mean, yes, I was, but it's just circumstance-based for me. So just know that anything could happen any day, even if it's just like, oh, I had car trouble and I don't have $500 to cover my car. And if I don't have a car, I can't get to work. And if I don't get to work, I can't get a paycheck and then I can't make ends meet, things like that. So I think everyone should think about it from the perspective of 
there could be disruptions in my life. Maybe it's I'm out of work for a week because I have to go take care of someone that I care about. Or maybe it's just there was a sudden layoff and now I can't find a job for a month. So having an emergency fund to fall back on makes your life easier. And in terms of the practicalities of starting to think that way financially and make your financial choices in that framing, um, are there sort of strategies or approaches that you recommend uh, for people who are just kind of starting out? My recommendation is always start small. You know, if it's 1% of your paycheck, or even if you look at it from the perspective of an entire week, say whatever your earnings are per week, if you make $15 an hour, maybe two hours of that week you work for yourself. So that means $30 goes into your bank account and that goes towards savings or towards investments, any way you can to build it up. Doesn't have to be big, just start small. Out of curiosity, what is your relationship to the FIRE movement and financial independence? I was 100% into the FIRE movement when I was in my 20s. Again, from a health perspective, because I'm just like, okay, I need to get to financial freedom as fast as possible. Because to me, I felt like the quicker I hit that number, the quicker I would have security. I was never really after it for the point of getting out of the workforce and not doing something. Um, but as I started to feel better and as I started to move into a job that I liked, I'm like, oh, that's kind of silly, actually. Like, why would I retire if I love my job? Why wouldn't I just keep doing what I'm doing? So I used to be more for fire these days, not really, because I have no intention to retire early, but I do believe that everyone should be striving for financial independence. You just don't have to race to get there. Yeah, we have a, a complicated relationship to the FIRE movement here at TFT because I do think, I mean, it's definitely gotten a lot better over the years. I think it used to be dominated by this very um, kind of toxic strain of thought that I you know, don't think is super sustainable or quite frankly, enjoyable for, for most people to adhere to. But I also do struggle. I mean, the elephant in the room in terms of, especially as it pertains to health and, you know, long-term ability to provide for yourself, you know, the elephant in the room is that our situation in America is so much more individualized than it should be, than it needs to be. Um, and we always kind of want to strike that balance between advocating that people do what they can to protect themselves and to advocate for themselves while also acknowledging like, hey, it shouldn't be this way. Like it shouldn't be that you can get injured and be bankrupted overnight because of that injury. Um, but I'm, you know, especially from the perspective that you have given, you know, your, your history, I, this is maybe a strange question, but do you ever have to deal with the emotions of like the unfairness of it all financially? Um, I, I mean, I think everyone's dealt various hands in life, right? So, I mean, there are some ways in which I have hardships, but there's ways in which other people have hardships. If I'm having a bad day and I had some issues that made it so I couldn't work that day or they have a long recovery time because the seizure was worse, yeah, I think it's unfair. And yeah, I'll have my moments where I break down and I'm like, I shouldn't have to deal with this. But I mean, the hand you're dealt is the hand you're dealt and you dust yourself up and you move on. Totally. Yeah, I think, I mean, financially, it's, we do 
hear a lot of that in terms of, you know, obviously health is one thing, but for a lot of people in our generation, I think the the sense of financial unfairness comes from things like uh, student debt in terms of, you know, I was basically all but forced to make this decision by the authority figures around me who told me that this was the only way to ensure that I had, you know, a chance at earning a decent living and it put me severely into debt and I'm barely earning any money uh, from this degree that I was told to get. And I think, you know, I personally struggled a lot with, I, I didn't have student debt, but, you know, I think for a lot of people, sorry, for a lot of people, that feeling of, the emotions of getting out of a situation that were not totally fair or that you didn't even necessarily put yourself in in the first place, like that can be a really big stumbling block to starting to build a better financial future. It sounds like you have a very positive attitude, but I'm I'm interested if you have any kind of words of advice for people who um, who are really struggling with the emotions of that. I, I have to realize I've been dealing emotionally with my side of it for like 18 years. So, I mean, it's easy to be positive when you have been at it for a while. But I mean, I think like getting into like debt situations, like student loans, and as you mentioned with your example, that feels like a little bit of a different situation to me in that I've never been in student loan debt, but I feel like I might be in a position where I wanted to blame someone because I'm like, how dare you not educate me on that? Because we don't send our high schoolers out with an education of what type of student loan they could afford and what careers actually offer a potential for a secure paycheck and what different industries are paying. So I think there's a severe lack of education. I mean, ultimately, like I said, you kind of have to deal with whatever situation you're in. I know emotionally it can be hard, but ultimately I'm just kind of like, you have to go forward. Like I always have a saying in life, like you have to be okay. It doesn't matter if you're really okay today, you have to find a way to be okay because tomorrow comes, the next week comes and you do, you can either stay where you are and you can feel bad or you can find a way to take the next step. And it can be hard to see an end goal, but if you can find one step to take, it's one step closer. Now, you mentioned that you actually came from what's I would consider a fairly unique background financially in the sense that it was always such an open topic and you even had people um, close to you who were like actively interested in, you know, the stock market and things like that. You mentioned uh, to me before we started shooting that you actually started investing in the market at age nine, which is incredible. Um, But most people don't have that. And especially most women don't have that background. And for a lot of people, as I mentioned, their background with money, the the sort of mentality that they're coming to their finances with in adulthood um, is actually quite a bit more emotionally fraught. And it can be very nerve wracking or it can be a source of shame or anxiety, whether it's because you didn't have enough of it or because you were never taught about it or because it was always very unstable, growing, uh, unstable when you were growing up. Um, And you seem, at least on the outside, like a person who has a very kind of value neutral, emotionally kind of 
balanced approach to finances. Um, do you have any recommendations for people who don't necessarily have that really financially healthy background, um, but want to get to a place of emotional and shame neutrality with money? First, I have to say, I grew up with all sides of money. Like my grandma was the one who would invest. And so she would teach me about that. My mom, as I said, single mom, um, very difficult for her to make ends meet. She actually, she worked three jobs to put my dad through school without any debt. And then ultimately worked for my dad for quite some time until they got divorced. Ultimately, he fired her when they got divorced. So I kind of saw like a lot of different relationships with money. I've seen the good, I've seen the bad, but I I really approach it from a judgment-free zone just because you never know what anybody's perspective is, what their history is. Um, To me, I never feel more in control than if I have that savings. So it just goes back to the, if you start small, you feel like you gain control. If you don't have any money, you are absolutely out of control. You're at the whim of whatever life throws at you. You're banking on that next paycheck coming next week. It's, I know it's definitely a situation. So many people are in paycheck to paycheck and you depend on that, but the more dependence you have on that, I think the harder your life is, the more stressful it is, the more out of control you feel. First of all, I think I speak for everyone watching and listening when I say like, oh my God, I cannot believe that your dad did that to your mom. That is unbelievable. We do not stand what happened in that situation. Um, I'd be interested to know if you're comfortable talking about it. You know, that is obviously a really destabilizing event financially. Has that impacted how you approach money in relationships specifically? Oh, for sure. Um, I have to say, like, relationships are very complex, right? So, I mean, I have a great relationship with my dad today and my mom has a great relationship with my dad today. They still talk on the phone and they still go out to breakfast once a month. So, I mean, you have to realize there's a lot of components that go into a relationship. But for me personally, watching that, I am married. My husband and I have been together for eight years. We're incredibly happy. Life's going well. I would never 100% combine my finances though, watching a really messy divorce and watching what being dependent and totally tied to someone does. I will always have a yours, mine and ours approach. We combine everything for the joint expenses like the house or trips, but I have my own accounts. He has his own accounts and I will never combine everything fully. Um, Do you recommend prenups? Yeah, we have one, absolutely. I'm interested, a lot of people I think And it's really fascinating, too, because we as a generation, millennials, um, you know, my parents are are still together, um, but many of my other relatives are, you know, divorced. I think, you know, looking at my social groups growing up, it's probably close to 50-50, which is the stats in a lot of areas. So suffice to say, even if you didn't come from... um, you know, a complicated uh, sort of marriage background with your parents, it's almost impossible in our generation that you didn't, that you weren't aware of those things, that that didn't happen all around you. And yet there is still a really substantial stigma to getting prenups and even to really approaching money in a relationship the way that you just described. Um, I definitely err a lot closer to the model that you described with my own husband, but 
I think that for a lot of people that feels like something that's just not even available to them to really talk about um, or that it somehow kind of undermines or compromises the relationship. Um, I'm interested, A, like when you were having those conversations uh, with your now husband as someone who, you know, has always had that more kind of serious approach to money, was that a difficult conversation to have? And what would you say to someone who would like to have an approach closer to yours but maybe doesn't feel totally empowered to do that in their own relationship? I would say it's not an easy conversation. I definitely, my husband was very open to it. I mean, cause I started talking about it probably from the time we started getting serious. Like even before we were engaged, I just said, this is something that's important to me. And we would have more and more of those conversations. But I mean, I told him ultimately I wouldn't go through with a marriage without a prenup just because of my past experiences. And he knows my history. So I think he, him knowing where I was coming from helped. But I think also if you go over the perspective of setting up a prenup is a way to, it is thinking about the end of a relationship, but it's better to plan the end of a relationship when you're in a happy place and when you're getting along. And prenups are beneficial for both parties. They're looking out for everyone. So I think if you can plan that when you're in a happy place, things go better. And ultimately, I just want everyone to be treated fairly. Granted, I never want to use the prenup. I want to be with him forever. I always tell him my wagon's hitched to him forever. But it's there in case things happen because you never really know in life. So I think having the conversations earlier, not obviously like first date, but when you feel like this is getting serious, you're maybe moving in with this person, like set the expectation and know that if you just blindside them one day, once you're engaged or something, yeah, they're going to be taken aback. So I think the more often you talk about it and why, give a why behind it, I think that helps. Yeah, I I totally agree with all that. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately I view prenups as an act of love because you're saying that even if it's not with me, I want you to be given what you what is fair to you. I want you to be treated fairly, um, which I think is, you know, kind of a selfless approach to relationships that we don't often highlight. I think we often have this very sort of, you know, possessive approach to it where it's like, as long as you're with me, you get to be sort of treated well and, you know, financially secure and all of that. Um, And I don't think women often understand how, much they can be disadvantaged without a prenup in the sense that, you know, it is still unfortunately women who take the by far the largest hit in terms of earning potential if they have children, um, you know, who have to take on the majority of the domestic labor, which is uncompensated. You know, they're on paper often in a situation where over the years they become more and more financially dependent on, you know, the man in what is, you know, at least majority heterosexual relationships. Um And I really don't think women, I think women have gotten perhaps a bit too, um, have perhaps too rosy a picture of gender equity in terms of money, especially as it pertains to the workplace. And, you know, we're not in a position that, you know, previous generations were in where we can't have our own credit cards or we're totally locked out of a lot of the workforce and the educational um, world. But we're definitely not at a place of parity. And I think that a lot of women are rather naive about to the extent to which they need to protect themselves. Absolutely. I think like when I look at a relationship, I don't look at it as 
two people as one person. I look at it as two people continuing to be individuals. And I think you always have to look out and make sure your bases are covered as well as the bases of the relationship. Because like I said, you never know. I mean, whether or not a relationship ends intentionally through divorce, but what if something happens, you know, like obviously my mind tends to think that way. Like what if there's a death? You still need to make sure your bases are covered and having a financial plan is a big part of that. And if it's a divorce, a prenup is a big part of that. It sure is. I want to once again thank today's sponsor, PNC Bank. One of the perks of just getting started on your financial journey is that you can learn from the mistakes others have made, like not taking advantage of automating different areas of your finances so that you can avoid them. I'd love for you to join me on April 6th for Six Money Lessons I Wish I Learned Earlier, a totally free webcast for students. In this practical workshop, I'll share the important money lessons I wish I'd learned earlier. This workshop is for anyone who wants to get better with money, no matter where you currently are on your financial journey. I'll be covering topics like the importance of investing early, even if you only have a few dollars to spare, the biggest misconceptions about credit cards and credit scores, how the financial buddy system works and why you need it in your life, and other tools to help improve your relationship with money for good. You'll leave with relatable, judgment-free advice that you can start implementing right away. Save your spot and join from anywhere using the link in today's episode description. See you there. I want to take a quick pause and thank today's sponsor, ZocDoc. If there's one thing you should actually take the time to do, it's find yourself a good doctor, whether it's for your mental health, your yearly checkup, or a new dentist because you're still going to the same one from your childhood and realize you don't actually like them. Finding the right doctor should not be an overwhelming task. It should actually be the opposite. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. Instead of going to TikTok for medical advice, no shade because you know I love TikTok, it's just not where I nor you should be seeking out medical advice, I use ZocDoc, literally, I personally do use it, to find the right medical professionals, and you should too. Like I said, I actually use ZocDoc, and honestly, it has been really, really helpful to just keep that entire part of my life totally organized, as it's something that can easily feel overwhelming and become an item on your to-do list that just kind of lingers there forever and gives you anxiety. ZocDoc is honestly the GOAT. And if for whatever reason you're not feeling your best, finding the right care shouldn't take up all your time and energy. That's where ZocDoc comes in to help. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your busy schedule. Here in New York City, some doctors are booked up for weeks, if not months in advance, and that's not particularly helpful when you have something that needs timely attention. With ZocDoc, you can book an appointment with a few taps in their app and choose from thousands of patient-reviewed doctors and specialists, browse doctor profiles, upload and verify your insurance information, and get the care you need in one place. Go to ZocDoc.com TFC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoccom slash TFC. ZocDoc.com slash TFC. So you described your approach to financial independence changing throughout your 20s, um, going from being very kind of singularly focused on earning as much money as possible to insulate yourself um, in the event that you weren't able to work to what you have today, which is an approach that's a lot more flexible and less focused on kind of extreme uh, money accumulation. Um, can you talk a little bit about the practicalities and the specifics of what you were doing with your money then versus what you're doing with it now? 
I sure I wasn't doing much <laughs> in my 20s because like I would make a paycheck and a hundred percent into the stock market and into investing. Um, I choose index funds, but ultimately hundred percent of every paycheck. I rarely took a vacation. I didn't go out like my life was work, save, invest, work, save, invest, repeat. That's it. I worked probably 80 hours a week. I worked too much. Um, I was too focused on building that end goal. But I also say I was very not well at this time, so I didn't really want to go out. I didn't want to go on vacation because those were very hard years, so there was nothing really for me to celebrate. But as I have a more balanced approach now, now I actually take a vacation. I'll actually enjoy shopping. I'll go take a trip with friends. I'll go out to dinner, and I strive to save probably 20% is my low benchmark. I'm still pretty frugal by nature. I mean, you can't get rid of the frugality if it's in your bones. So I probably actually save closer to 30 or 40%. But to me, saving is a line item now. It is not my entire budget. And I focus on actually enjoying my life and enjoying time with my family and creating experiences. So I have more life nowadays than I did back in my 20s. And as I mentioned in the intro, you actually have a full-time job on top of the work that you do on YouTube, um, which I assume is also now a, a sizable additional stream of, of income for you. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, at least I'm curious, but I'm sure a lot of people listening are curious, you know, first of all, how do you sort of manage doing both just on a practical time management perspective? Um, you know, what does that look like? But also... How do you sort of balance doing these things that ostensibly you enjoy and that, you know, bring you a lot, a level of financial security, um, but not sort of converting all of your waking life into monetizable hours? <laughs> Honestly, I only work like seven hours a day and I work two Fridays a month. So I take off every other Friday. So my life is very balanced now. Um, it's a huge help that I work from home. Like, my husband's in the service. So we move every three to four years. And prior to me starting my own business, I was looking for a new job every three to four years. And it is very hard to find a job when you're a military spouse, when you're a woman in her thirties, because they all think that you're going to go have a baby and quit and want maternity leave. If you reveal your disability, that makes you somebody that they don't want to hire too. So I had a lot of things stacked against me. So I just created my own job and one that I can move with me and working from home makes that possible. So I have no commute. It helps that I get to work in my pajamas. My commute is 30 seconds upstairs. So I don't have an hour long commute. It gives me hours back in my day where I can actually do things that I enjoy. But yeah, I kind of had to create my own work because I don't really have a life that allows me to go out and get a job for someone else. And what is your job that you created for yourself? Um, I'm in dental insurance, so I, I handle the billing portion of it. So how do you kind of, is there a structure to your days in terms of this is when I'm working on my day job, this is when I'm working on YouTube? I'm pretty fluid um, because none of my work is time-based other than I have to have my tasks done by the end of the day. So I wake up early. I tend to wake up between five or six. So I'll go work on the dental side of things for a handful of hours. And then maybe midday I work on YouTube. I go take my dog on a walk. And then after lunch, I go back and I work. And then I try to be done around like four or so. So, I mean, I get up early and I just work until I decide I want to take a break. And it's kind of nice to have that freedom. 
That is really nice. And what do you do with all of the hours that you're not working out of curiosity? Um, I'm big into working out. I'm a runner. I with I lift weights. Um, I hang out with my dog a lot. Honestly, I'm not all that exciting. Just whatever Peanut wants to do, that's what I do. The dog's name is Peanut. Yeah, I love that. That's you know, it's really interesting to. I think there's not enough credit given to having a lot of free time and just kind of doing the things that you enjoy with it. I think a lot of people have a real sense of pressure on themselves to always be doing something productive or practical with their time or something that's sort of leading to something. Um, And it sounds like, you know, you mentioned you worked 80 plus hours a week earlier in adulthood. was it difficult for you to transition to a lifestyle where you don't actually work really even full-time hours and you don't feel a pressure on yourself to fill the rest of that time with something useful or monetized? I would say kind of, um, but I kind of reached like a burning out point because there was a point where I was actually working two full-time 40-hour-a-week jobs and doing YouTube. And I literally remember turning to my husband. I'm like, I literally feel like I'm dying. Like I I cannot continue at this. Like something is going to break. It's not going to be good. And so I quit both jobs and I kind of floated around for two weeks until I started my own business. And it was a transition, but I always walk around nowadays and I feel like I have no stress as far as work is concerned. And I feel like that is such a blessed place to be that I actually get to wake up and enjoy what I do. And if I want to take a coffee break, if I want to go read a book, like I get to do that. So that's why I kind of say, why would I not do this? Why would I try to ever retire, try to work more aggressively and go back to a schedule that I hated. If I have a schedule I like, and I've found a way to balance life and work and doing things that I love. I mean, I feel like I kind of won the lotto on that kind of side of things. It sounds like you did for sure. Um, you know, obviously, you know, as we, as we discussed, you know, you seem to have gotten to such a, like, honestly, mind-blowingly healthy level of uh, balance with regards to your finances and your work and all of that. Um, You know, to someone who is erring more on the side that you were on previously where they are, um, you know, really focused on making as much money as possible and especially are very um, hard on themselves when it comes to spending uh, on things that they enjoy, uh, whether it's travel or shopping or experiences or whatever it may be, they, they're they very, um, it could be fear-based, it could be anxiety-based, it could just be shame-based or feeling like you don't deserve it. Um, as someone who did make the transition into being able to spend on yourself without guilt or stress, you know, do you have advice for people who are still way overly frugal with themselves and struggling with those purchases? Um, I definitely struggled with that for a very long time. And I still, I'm still pretty frugal. I mean, <laughs> it's still there. Um, I would say my husband was a big help with that because he's, he's diligent with money. He's purposeful. He's not frugal like I was. And my mom was a big help in that, in that 
she's not frugal in the way I was like my mom would buy me a gift and it was like shortly after my surgeries like she would buy like a nice thing like she'd give me a necklace or something I would leave the price tag on it and I'm like please return this get the money back if something happens because I don't want you to be out that money which is kind of a weird thing to do from a gift perspective but I, I think like you have to get to the heart of why like for me I was like, without having a bucket of cash there to fall back on, I felt out of control. So for me, it was more focused on fixing my health. If you're racing towards financial independence because you hate your job, maybe a better fix is trying to find a job you like. Maybe it's a job that has lesser pay and that can be a struggle, you know, finding something that you can still make ends meet because you can't just automatically tell someone, oh, your job pays $70,000, go accept this other job you'll love more that pays 40. Well, if they have bills that need the $70,000 income, that creates its own set of problems. But if you can find a way to transition and find ways to make your life better, like more enjoyable that you're not having to race there. If it's getting out of a job you like, whether it's getting a health issue under control, like find out what the why is. I would attack the why first before I would say, I want to work myself into the ground because that is not a way to live. I don't recommend it to anyone. I don't recommend that decade that I did. I, I wouldn't want anyone to do that. How do you know what's enough in terms of feeling like, okay, this is an amount of money that I am secure with to feel like I have that level of control that you're describing? I think everyone has a different number. You know, I mean, we talk about like emergency funds in the financial space and maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months. Maybe for some people you feel better if you have a year, but I think it's where you're not saying I am totally 100% reliant on this paycheck and I can't make it two weeks without the paycheck. So I think you have to give yourself some breathing room. Like I said, whether it's a month, whether it's three months. For me, I like to have access to a year just because I tend to be a little bit concerned. Um, but I mean, with that said, I'm not at a place where I'd be like, oh, I retired today. I don't think it's totally financially set from that perspective. I plan on working until 60s or whenever I want to retire. So it's not like achieving total financial freedom, but I think it's giving yourself breathing room in your financial life. You know, what are some ways that you would advise people, um, whether or not they're necessarily at the level of, you know, maybe starting their own business or side stream of income, um, to just be a lot more thoughtful ab about how, you know, they're growing their income, but also leverage what they do have to increase what they're earning? I mean, it's kind of silly to say, but like a budget is a great place to start because so many people don't even know what they're spending that when you can find out the areas you're spending. And if you look and you're paying for streaming service, you don't even use, or you're spending an extra couple hundred dollars going out to eat. And not to say that there's anything wrong with going out to eat. We all have to enjoy ourselves. But if I'm in the place where I'm feeling that pinch, I absolutely want to focus on the essentials and I want to build up whatever kind of reserve I can. So I feel like I have that safety net. And I feel like that safety net is what gives you the courage to go out and negotiate or go out and look for another job. And for me, I have to say, like, I have to give big credit to my husband because being in a two income household gives you a lot of freedom. You know, it was very easy for me to step away from a job knowing 
that our bills are still covered, you know? So my husband also has that freedom. And when he gets out of the service, he knows that he can take time to look for a job and I'll cover our bills. So I think having someone to lean on, it makes your life exponentially easier. In terms of the practical conversations when you've negotiated for yourself in the past, did you have kind of specific strategies that you used to increase your income that were helpful to you? Yeah, I would um, use metrics. Like a lot of the employers that I worked for, I would say, okay, if I can get our revenue sources to X amount in two months, can I negotiate a 5% raise or can I negotiate negotiate a bonus structure that we go by? And if I keep hitting these metrics, can I get a monthly bonus? So I think if you can prove to your employer that you're willing to go above and beyond to bring in extra revenue for them, they're more likely to want to compensate you. And when you started your own business, I would imagine that you probably had to invest in it to some extent. Is that true? A very minimal amount. Honestly, my my business is, it needed a computer, basically. Okay. Um, but did you, was there any sort of, um, you know, kind of risk calculus or how did you get to a place where you decided financially, okay, I'm in a place where I can start my own business and these are kind of the goalposts that I'm using, you know, because even if you don't have to necessarily put money in upfront, there has to be some sort of business case in terms of like, this is how I assess that it's working. These are, you know, the metrics that I'm going by. I was prepared to not be profitable for the first year. So I figured I would give myself a year to not worry about anything. And again, being in a two income household, being reliant on my husband during that year was incredible. You know, it again, adds that freedom. But ultimately I was able to be profitable after eight months, which was nice. So bonus for me, but um, I didn't set my benchmarks high. I just wanted to prove that I could do something myself and not have to go out there and get a job for someone else. So I said, I would consider myself a success if it made 40 a year and I hit 40. And to me, that was amazing. And so I purposely focused on growing really, really slow. But again, I wasn't really dependent on paying our household expenses from that. So I was able to take it slow. But I think giving yourself the freedom to know that it can take time to build up, but it's worth it in the end. So I think that really helped out. And what made you start, uh, you know, your your sort of YouTube side career on top of it? Um, I have a degree in finance and I took all the tests to go become a CFP. And then I just didn't take the test. So I've always loved uh, finance and I didn't use it in my day job. And it didn't mean that I just wanted to toss it away. So this was an outlet for me to connect with people who are very interested in finance. And I found some really cool people, you know, in the, in your daily life, you can't like walk down the street and be like, oh, hey, do you want to talk about Roth IRAs? Or do you want to talk about how much you're paying for your house? Most people don't want to have that conversation with you. But through YouTube, I've met loads and loads of people who share a passion for it. And so, I mean, to me, it's just an outlet for another passion of mine. Are you at all focused on it in terms of the revenue that it provides? Um, I've had goals along the way, obviously, like I had a goal to hit the first thousand subscribers, which I don't know, took me like over a year or something. Um, and now I, I would like to build it up. I, I, I don't know if I look at it as being 
my income stream though. Cause again, I, I love what I do on the dental side of things. And I have no intention of stepping away from that. I'm having fun with YouTube. I really want to help people get educated in the financial space because I feel like the more educated you are, the better decisions you can make. And I don't care if you're 18 or 80, we all need to understand finances. And there's no one out there who's really teaching them in a formal format. You know, you don't find it in the school system. There are so many resources out there online and books and everything nowadays. And so much of it is available for free. And if I can be a piece of that and I can help people get better in their journey, I love that. So it's just very rewarding. I don't know if I have a goal for it to become my career though. So, I mean, yeah, I want to grow the revenue from it, but it's a very no pressure situation. I want to enjoy it. What are sort of the biggest pieces of the biggest pieces of advice that you like to give to people that come to your channel looking for financial advice, whether it's, you know, things that they might be doing wrong or things that you think everyone, you know, sort of small changes that everyone can benefit from? Um, to me, I like getting invested early because I think everyone knows compounding interest, right? But so many 20 year olds aren't investing when they could be putting away $50 a month and that could turn into seven figures by the time they retire. It's just, if you can truly wrap your head around that and you can find a way to put something small into the market, that's great. So if we could get like teenagers or young 20 somethings passionate, just about setting something aside, that to me is like the coolest thing ever. Or like I'll make a video on T-bills and then somebody's like, I've never heard of these. And I didn't know I could get 5% on cash or I found some CDs that were making 5%. So if I feel like people actually learned something and then took action with their money, whether it's from an investing standpoint or getting a better return on their cash or paying off their debt, to me, like that's the win. So if you can just make a step towards investing and saving and getting out of debt, that's the best. You know, sort of lastly from both the emotional perspective and also the practical financial perspective, you know, obviously investing in the market is a huge part of your sort of personal financial strategy and advice. Um, but for a lot of people, the other big piece of that pie is going to be real estate and usually, you know, your primary residence. And it's something that we've talked about a lot on TFD from both sides of the spectrum in terms of, you know, I personally own my home and I've broken down everything about that and why it was kind of the right decision for us at the time. Um, but we've also talked a lot about how, you know, owning a home can be a bad thing and can be much more risky than most people are even really aware of. Um, but it also is something that I think has a lot of emotional significance for people. It can be a huge driver of shame in terms of, you know, not being, not feeling, you know, maybe adult enough. If you don't have one, there can be a lot of pressure um, from families. We can have grown up with a lot of you know, really kind of outdated concepts about home ownership. Um, and I would be really interested to hear your ethos on real estate as it factors into your overall vision of money and, you know, how people are approaching money from, from a healthy, balanced way. I've spoken to this a bit on my channel. Like, I think of my home as a place to live, you know, whether I'm renting, whether I own it, we currently own this home, but this is the first home we've ever purchased. Prior to that, we've always rented and I felt just as at home in those. Um, for me, like I prefer to invest in the stock market only from the stance that I think it's the most accessible way for most people to start. It is far easier to tell someone you can get started with $50 and open an index fund versus you can get started and buy a house and you have to put 30,000 down. I mean, it's just 
night and day difference. So I think real estate is not necessarily as accessible. And as you mentioned, just because you bought a house doesn't mean that that's going to make money. doesn't mean that that's financially the best choice. Houses come with major expenses and also they lock you into an area. If you live a life where you have to move a lot, maybe buying isn't the best choice until you can get more stable. Maybe if you can't get approved for a loan that's at a great rate, maybe buying right now isn't the best choice. I think buying a home is a piece of the financial puzzle, but it's not the answer. You can be well on your way financially without a home and renting, and that's great, or you can buy a home, but everyone's situation is so individualized. Definitely. And what made it so that the home that you own right now is uh, was the right move for you? Well, we'll find out when we sell it in a year and a half if it was the right decision. Um, ultimately, I just got really sick of living in apartments and we found a home. It was honestly during the COVID pandemic and we couldn't see it. We bought a condo sight unseen, but we've expanded it and we've added a living room and a bedroom and a bathroom. So hopefully that makes it a good purchase that we can profit from and we can sell it. I don't know if we'll buy a home at the next place. Interest rates are very high. So I don't know if that would make the next purchase a good decision, but we were financially set in that we had a down payment. We were very comfortable with this next step. So we had the money set aside. That's why I think it was the right decision for us. I think it gave us the freedom that sometimes you lose with apartment complexes because I just got sick of the noise. I got sick of sharing walls nonstop. So it was a step we were willing to take because having a down payment because having finances to fall back on and we'll find out in a year and a half if it was the right choice. Out of curiosity, are you in one of the markets that really exploded during COVID or the ones that took a hit? Uh, exploded. We are in um, Rhode Island. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Anything around New York, it was absolute pandemonium during the pandemic. And I Listen, I'm, I'm sure you seem very savvy, so I'm sure your purchase was savvier than many during that time, but uh, my parents sold their townhome in Philadelphia at the peak of that, um, and I am absolutely blown away at the decisions people were making at that time. It was so, I mean, granted interest rates were low, but they got something like, you know, a half dozen offers on the first day all over asking. And it was already priced at the top of the market and half the people hadn't even seen it. And I was like, okay guys, like, I understand it's the pandemic. Everyone wants a garden now, but th there's no way this is a good decision for you. But you know, people were doing it all around the city. Well, when we were home shopping, we came out to Rhode Island. We were in St. Louis at the time. We came out to Rhode Island and we looked and that's what we were dealing with. So ultimately we picked new construction because that way you're just like, oh, I'll take this unit. And you had to pay market price. There's no bidding war because then the next person who came in and said, I'll take a condo, they sell them the next one just because right, they right. were just building them. So it was much easier in that sense. And there was no bidding war. We're just like, we'll take it. Well, that's good because I know some people got into some bidding wars and I'm like, ladies, it's it's really not that serious. Like Connecticut will be there once this all calms down. Um, but uh, for those uh, listening who'd love to check out more of, you know, you talking about money, where can they go to uh, to find you? You can find me here on YouTube. I post new videos Monday and Friday and it is Aaron Talks Money. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing, um, quite frankly, your amazing stories with us. I'm blown away by, you know, all that you've kind of achieved financially and especially when it comes to having such a balanced approach. It's very admirable. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really like exciting because I've been watching your channel for years and years. So oh, pretty awesome. Look at that. Um, and thank you everyone for tuning in. And I will see you next Monday on an all new episode of The Financial Confessions. Bye everyone. Mm -hmm.